Hi, my name is Kevin McDonald, and I'm declaring my independence. Independence from what? Why, negative thoughts and energy, of course. Chief among them, hate, division, and fear. You see, I know that we're all one, and together we can solve any problem, save our planet and each other. Please, join me as we come together as one and choose a better way to be. So now, let's begin with my independence report. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of My Independence Report. I'm glad that you're here. Now we're in the future. Uh, we have a wonderful guest today, and we're going to talk about her and her book and her life, which they're kind of intertwined, if you will, because they're, it's all about her and her really her incredible story of, of determination, of growing up in a really, 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 really bad situation and uh and she made it through and uh she's lived a incredible life and she's written a book which is coming out and it's coming out and it's it's coming out april 5th 2022 and the name of the book is candle or darkness was my candle an odyssey of survival and grace and the author is Laura DeVores. Laura, how are you today, young lady? I am good. Thank you, Kevin. Well, I'm so glad that you're here. We had a chance to talk prior to um, this interview. And I do have to tell you, your story is nothing. If You know, it's one of those stories that you would think it would be a fiction or um, a novel of some kind. And it wasn't necessarily... Uh, uh, true, but every word of it's true, and it really was incredible um, what you went through in life and the early part, and then, and then of course you became a uh, um, a therapist, and you've helped a lot of people. You're an educator and a catalyst for transformational change, both for healthcare individuals and institutions. And we're going to talk about the institutions part in a little bit. So first of all, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thank you. It's wonderful to be here, and I'm very excited to have an opportunity to talk with you again, Kevin. Oh, it's it'll it'll be a lot of fun, and um, fun in a in a in a unique sense because telling your story, and uh, this goes back into the '70s, will help other people um, who may have had relatives or may have gone through the same thing. Um, in that in that olden time of the darkness, as it were, you know, of therapy and that kind of stuff. But let's let's start at the very beginning. You had a very unique childhood that was, um, for lack of a better term, rather horrific. Uh, can you describe that a little bit, please? Sure. Um, the first thing I'd like to say, lest you judge my mother too harshly is she grew up um, one of seven children during the depression her father died in a blizzard and her mother shut down and became catatonic and she was three years old and there was a brand new baby some elementary school sisters in between and then a couple of brothers and an older sister and in order to make a living um, or they would have all starved the oldest sister who was 14 hitchhiked into town. They lived in a small Wisconsin town in the middle of nowhere and got a job, which meant that my mother and her siblings were raised by the two boys. 
who really shouldn't have been caring for anyone. They could hardly care for themselves. And everyone was so stressed. And remember that story that we had to read in English class, Lord of the Flies? Oh, yes. When I think of my mother's family, it reminds me of that story where kids don't get the nourishment and nurturing they need. They decompensate. And yep. so, so my mother um, was always incestuous, had an incestuous relationship with her brothers or they with her, however you want to put that. And she got her first pair of shoes by climbing out a bedroom window and having sex with a farmhand. And that began her life of prostitution. I, I was born out of wedlock. I don't know who my father was. My aunts would say it could be Tom, Dick, or Harry, or my uncle. Oh, brother. And I, I believe my mother's development stopped at age three. She got no parenting. And so she, she didn't know how to be a parent. And I say that because at this point, I've come to peace with that history and even with her history and I know it's so hard, it's so easy to judge someone like that, especially when you know about the life that we lived. So I, so that's why I want to offer that in the beginning of this conversation. And I appreciate that because if you're not a student of history and you don't realize what it was like when you were born in the Depression and there was uh, not until the very end was there any kind of social security or any kind of social safety net. Right. And, and if you didn't have family and friends that were taking care of you, then you could quite literally just starve to death and, um, or freeze to death or any one of a number of things because if you didn't have heat for your home or, or things because we didn't have the, the sort of safety net that I, and so I get that when you are in that place and you have no other options, uh, you have to do what you have to do. And so I, and I'm, I'm glad that you have uh, made peace with that because that, that could have dictated your entire life and taking it in, into a completely different place. And so I'm, I'm, I'm congratulations. I think that's awesome. Thank you. So the first trauma for the most part, although life I think was always traumatic, my birth was traumatic. But the, the first trauma that I remember was when I was three, when my uncle killed himself in front of my mother and I on, Christmas, on Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> and um, my mother went pretty crazy and left the house and had beat me and left me upstairs in a crib, but it was a crib where the railing came down. And my mother's oldest sister came to give my mom a piece of her mind because we hadn't shown up for, for Thanksgiving dinner. And went halfway up the stairwell and called her name, but nobody was up there. And of course I was unconscious in the crib and then called the sheriff and they removed my uncle's body, but they never checked the house. So I was alone in that house for three days. And my mother staggered into the service three days later and everyone wanted to know where I was and she didn't know, she couldn't remember. Oh my goodness gracious. Like, that was in part her own trauma. She had just watched her brother shoot himself in the head in front of us. And I tried to get out, I got out of the bed, I was really hungry and I, I, they, by then they had removed the body, but as I said, they hadn't checked the whole house. And I pulled a loaf of bread off the table. So I was able to eat and then I was looking for someone and couldn't find anyone anywhere. And I opened the front door and there was a blizzard and the snow all drifted in. So I could neither close the door nor could I get out because of all the snow that drifted in. 
And I, I literally, and I'm very serious, it has never left me, had a sense of an angelic visitation. And this voice telling me to go upstairs on my back side so I wouldn't fall and to get back into the bed and cover myself up. And I that, believe uh, opening the door has been the foundation of my life. In, 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 indeed. And, you know, the, the interesting thing is, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking with Laura DeVore, and she's written a, a great book that is coming out here in a little bit. And I, I want to preface the fact that this, this story starts out really dark, really, really dark, but it doesn't stay dark. Yeah. But sadly, we're not through the darkness yet. Um, that that continued until your late teens, early twenties, yeah. and uh, and tell us more about that that portion of your life. So I, my mother prostituted me for the first time when I was nine. Eventually, because of lots of things that were happening, I was taken away from her by the courts, and that was pre-child protection years when they didn't have anywhere to put people, and so I went from one placement to another, and. I eventually um, went off to college um, with a couple of scholarships and I was so unprepared that I didn't even know I was supposed to sign up for a dorm. So showed up at college with a suitcase and wanting to know where to sleep and they had no dorms left. And that first year of college was very, very stressful. And I was working part time at a local hospital as a nursing assistant and a man was stalking me. He literally would pull me into the, the janitor's closet and kept telling me he wanted to date me. And I'm, you know, I'm 18 years old and I think he had to be 50. He was the respiratory therapist. And then he started showing up in the the wall, the, the halls at school and at the bottom of my L stop, this was in Chicago. And one night he tried to pull me into his car and I was able to get away from him because a man, a businessman was coming down the steps and yelled at him to leave me alone. So then he drove off. But I was so terrified, I quit my job and I didn't realize that the dorm was gonna be closing. And so now I had no job and I had nowhere to go being a, having been a foster kid. And in those days, they just discharged kids as soon as you turned 18. So I had no backup system. And I, I did a, a stupid thing, which had been a childhood default of thinking that I just take, a, I could just disappear. I could just take a bunch of, bunch of pills. So I think I took, a handful of aspirin or something. And immediately I caught myself and I thought that was really lame. And I made myself throw up. And then I went and told the dorm mother um, and I um, told her I had nowhere to go and I'd lost my job and or given up my job and why. And she said she could help me, but she was gonna put me in a taxi and send me across town to get checked out by a local hospital medically. And then I could come back and she'd figure out a summer job and a place to live for me. Well, the hospital that I, the ER that I was in said they were going to send me to another hospital called Illinois State Psychiatric Institute, where they wanted, to, um, they said that it would just, I'd probably be there just a couple days to get my feet back under me. And months later, I was still there and they kept giving me drugs, drugs that I didn't need. And eventually, um, they started giving me shots and liquid Thorazine. And I ran away a couple times. And after the second time, they um, com committed me to the worst state hospital in the Illinois system. Now, just uh, just to remind folks, if you've ever seen a horror movie, 
of of what a uh, what a psychiatric hospital looked like in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and even 50s and 60s, because they weren't updated very well and they weren't kept no, kept weren't. Uh, modern and all that kind of stuff. That's the place where you ended up. Right. And the building was, I was in was built in the 1800s and it had never been updated. So that would that would have been again, and, and they were as a matter of control. They were keeping you on drugs to keep you sedated. Correct. Correct. Thorazine had um, come out on the market and had been sold to all of the state institutions as a way to get people out of the state hospitals. And it was considered a, it was considered a chemical lobotomy. And if okay. you know what a lobotomy is, a lobotomy is removing a part of your brain. And it literally sedated you and flattened your affect out so you could care about nothing. And while I was there, as well as when, while I was in the first hospital, what my records say is that I was on Thorazine, Stelazine, Melaril, Librium, and Dilantin, all at the same time. Jeez. So you can imagine I was quite the walking zombie. Oh, oh yeah. The, the only the only reference I have to a, a lobotomy is I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than have to have a frontal lobotomy. Um, but because, quite frankly, they they accomplish pretty much the same thing. You become a zombie, and uh, and uh, and so at this point, you're 20 years old, and you're in this place, and you can't get out. By the way, they won't let you out. No, no. You are you, you're being confined there. And at that in that day and age, um, this would have been 69, 1969. Um, in that day and age, you were committed for life. And at the first hospital I was in, the day that I was committed, I went to my room and I, 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 um, I just shut down. I had no feelings. I felt like I had, I, with the, the sound of the judge's gavel, I had watched my life sl slip away from me and I couldn't figure out how on earth I'd gotten here. And they were going to remove me to the state hospital the next day. And a nurse kept coming in and out of my room to check on me all evening. And shortly before the end of her shift at 11 o'clock, she said, I'm coming in and I'm going to sit with you till daybreak if that's what it takes, because you're not going to survive where you're going unless you let yourself have some feelings about this. And it took her till dawn. Her name was Dr. Sydney Krampitz. Um, she wasn't a doctor at that point. She was a graduate student in psych nursing. But she sat with me till dawn. And finally, I broke down and she said, you haven't done anything wrong. I believe that what they're doing is illegal and I will do absolutely everything in my power to get you out. You know, it's, it's amazing that in your life, when you opened the door, when you were young and there was a blizzard and you had a visitation from an angel and then this person shows up and turns out to be an angel in physical form. Okay. It's, it is amazing. The resiliency of the human spirit, that you can that you can survive all of that, and then somebody um, is there for you. And she became very important to you, didn't she? She did. She did. She worked really hard to get me out. It took fifteen months total. She didn't come for the first nine months. She, uh, at that point, where she lived was about two and a half to three hours away, and she was a Lutheran minister's wife and had three small little girls and was in graduate school and working part-time. And she kept saying to herself, she's a smart college student. I'm sure they'll figure that out. So she's not there anymore. And one morning she woke up and she said she felt haunted by me. 
And so she called the hospital to see if I was still there, assuming that I wasn't, and was shocked that I was. And then she she made the long trip out there. And after that, she came back repeatedly. And she was horrified the condition I was in. And then on one of those trips, um, I was in even worse shape. And all I can remember is she said, sit right here. I'll be right back. I'm going to administration. So I, I sat in this visiting room where she would meet with me. And um, she came back and she said, I told him I'm taking you home today. And years later, what she told me is she said, I'm taking her home with me because if I don't get her out of here and give her some hope, we're going to lose her. And she said it was the scariest moment for her because they didn't even ask her for an ID. And she always says this little joke I actually have on, on my website on video. She says, I could have been Jack the Ripper or anybody. <laughs> and um, But that was very disconcerting to her that they, they would just let me leave like that. And the hardest thing was bringing me back, but it did take her a very long time to get me out. Is it because they were basically warehousing you um, and that you were either going to live or die and, and that, that wasn't as much of a concern to them that if, if somebody were to come and take you away, that that was a blessing for them because they didn't have to deal with it anymore? Is that, is that how that happened or do you have any idea? I don't know. It was just for a weekend. It wasn't she was getting me out at that point. Oh, okay. She took me home for a long weekend at her house. And then she did that several times until finally um, she had pestered them so much and threatened them so much with getting an attorney. They finally had me tested to see if I could stand um, a court trial. And my IQ came back in the 40s. And the psychologist who did the testing said, you couldn't possibly have been in college with this kind of IQ. You would have been in a sheltered workshop. This, it's got to be the drugs. And then the, she got on board. And so she also helped Sidney Krampitz in lobbying to get me out. And first they had to convince the administration to wean me of some of the drugs so I could pass the testing. That's crazy. <laughs> that, is, that is simply... You know, and I, I was alive in 1969. I remember those years well. I didn't think that we were that, you know, but apparently we were in, in some in some places. We were still working like as if it was 1895 or something. Right, right. And, uh, and, and but the, the cool thing is, is that, that after that, um, she got you out permanently and uh, you were able to recover. You got off of drugs. What was your uh, um, withdrawal like? Was that was that significant? It was it was horrible. I I didn't know that there were withdrawal effects, and so um, I saw a psychiatrist for maybe five ten minutes the day I was admitted and the day I was discharged, and she gave me a little packet of pills and told me to take them. And when I ran ran out of them, to go to a community mental health center and get more. And it wasn't until many years later when I went back to Elgin with Sidney Krampus, probably about five years ago now, and we were meeting with someone who had worked in administration back then. And he asked, he, he said, I can't believe you got out. Nobody ever got out then. They died here. And he said, how did you get out? And so Sidney told him her part of the story. And he said, what was your discharge like? And I told him that, you know, the doctor saw me for about five, 10 minutes, gave me this packet and told me to go to community mental health center and get more. And he said, did you? I said, no. And he said, you must have had a hell of a year. And it's amazing that you survived and didn't die coming 
those kind of psychotropics. Well, and that, that is a major concern for somebody that is on all these, uh, you know, all these, all these drugs that to come off of it, it, that can be a life ending experience all by itself. Right. Whoops. So that it, I'm, you're right. Yep. I don't know what happened. Okay. Well, we had a little glitch, but that's, that's what happens when we, when we do these things sometimes. So, so you've written the book. How long, when did you decide that you wanted to sit down and write this book? I knew that I wanted, that I was going to write probably from adolescence on, and I was always very good in English, and I always wrote it, kept a journal. But I didn't, and then eventually, probably about seven, eight years ago, I um, had gotten a writing mentor and had started to write a book, but it was a very different book. And I was at my writing mentors doing some research for her. She was writing, a, she always writes a book every summer. And she had, um, she wanted me to be a driver for her and be her scribe. And we were, um, she wanted to go to um, Hanford Nuclear Site in Washington State, if we could get in, as well as to the Yakima Reservation to interview elders for the book that she was writing. And so I was doing research for her a couple days before we left on the trip. I was at her house in Southern California. And all of a sudden, the words Elgin State Hospital came up on the screen. And I was shocked. And they had been giving patients uranium shots. Oh, my. Back in the, I, I can't remember right now, 40s or 50s. Now, that was way before my time, but just seeing that they had been doing research at that point in time was shocking to me. And just seeing the words Elgin State Hospital was shocking to me. And later that day, Dina asked me how the, how the research was going. And I said, it was, it's okay. And she said, what's coming up for you? And I said, well, um, I saw a little bit about my past on the screen. And she said, what past? what part, and by then she knew about everything there was to know about me, but she didn't know about Elgin State Hospital. And so I said, well, summer after my freshman year in college, I was committed to a state hospital. And she looked at me and she said, and why did I never hear you were in a state hospital? And I realized in those moments that I still felt a lot of shame about that. Sure. And by the end of that trip with Dina, that had fallen away and it became really clear that writing a number of things, but about the state hospital in particular and other things that I initially was not going to put in the book I was writing about was essential for the book. It, it, your story is, it's, it's essential to the entire story um, because m many people will not recover and to do the types of things in your life that you've done. And, uh, it really is a testament. It's a positive testament. It took a long time to get positive, but it was a positive testament to uh, your your uh, abilities and what you uh, have been able to accomplish. I got to ask you, um, on the cover of the book, is that little girl you? Yes, it is. That's me at age seven. You had you had wonderful uh, lights in your eyes. Did, did, did you recognize that? Yes. Yes, and I didn't choose that co cover. The person who owns the publishing company fell in love with that that particular picture because they, they wanted me to send them pictures that they could have in the book, and he's the one who decided 
that that should be on the front of the book. And at that age, um, I discovered music in churches. One one Saturday, I wandered into the local Catholic church, and, and I was a kid who just ran wild. My mother never cared where I was and, and frequently told me to go play in the traffic. And so I was all over the place. So I wandered in the Catholic church, and the music was so beautiful, and the choir was rehearsing up in the balcony. And I found my way to the stairwell because I wanted to get as close to the music as I could. And I just went into this amazing transcendent state. And after that, I discovered that when the Methodists had their choir rehearsal and when the Lutherans had theirs, and I would go to churches to listen to choirs rehearse. And it felt like it would just take me to this place of transcendence and away from everything. Which you needed at that point. Absolutely. Absolutely. You needed, you needed to feel positive about something. Yeah. And if you could uh, escape and it was your way of sca escaping the reality that you were in at the time. Yes. And it's been and it's been a major part of your life for the rest of your life, hasn't it? Mm -hmm. Music what? music has has the ability because of the vibrational aspects of it and and the positivity of a lot of the music. It really has an opportunity to to help us through some of the issues. And I believe that was another um you had the visitation and I think this was another um, moment in time where you were guided into a place so that you could be, so that you could feel better. And because I think that everyone around you that uh, either passed on or, or your angels, they were all so concerned for you. You know, the other, the other person that helped me to hold on, and that didn't come till right before I was nine, was, and by then I'd had my first suicide attempt. Uh, was a, a neighbor, an upstairs neighbor that I met. One morning I was sitting outside and my mother hadn't been home for several days. And there was no food in the house. And I I was hoping she'd come home and some neighborhood kids came. And one of the kids asked me what I was doing. And I said, waiting for my mom, which was the wrong thing to say. Because the next thing you know, they went running by me, went into our apartment. And they were pushing the door with their arms to keep the door closed. And I was pushing to get in and the whole upper part of the door was glass and I pushed my way through. And so they all scattered except for one little girl and blood everywhere cuts up and down my hands and both arms. And she dragged me up the street to the small freestanding emergency room and hundreds of stitches later and a note in my pocket in the bill Oh, no. Remember, this is pre-child protection years. Today, oh, we wouldn't send a child home like that. But I was sobbing because I knew that I was going to get, my mother was going to beat me for the mess I'd left in the hall. And she'd figure out that there were, had been somebody in the house. And I walked into the entryway and um, the upstairs neighbor, neighbor, a man named Richard, was putting a new window in. And he said his wife had heard the, the screaming and the breaking glass and run down to see what was going on of blood up to the ER. So she had um, sent him to the hardware store and he was putting in a new window and she'd cleaned everything up. And he said, you go on upstairs now and get some lunch. She made you some lunch and chocolate chip cookies. And that was the first time I met her. I sometimes saw them coming and going. And that night she invited me to spend the night on their, their couch because my mother didn't come home. And I, I wasn't willing to, I was too afraid to, to but they gave me a key that was called the just-in-case key. And I still have that key. 
Oh, wow. The key was just in case I changed my mind. And we only lived there about another month and a half. And the day they were moving away, I totally fell apart. And I started to sob and I said, you can't leave me. You're the only adult I've ever met that likes children. And, <laughs> and that, which is true. I didn't know any adults that, that, did, that like children. And she pulled me into her arms and just started rocking me and cradling me and kept saying, I love you. I love you. You're a good little girl. And something came awake in me. I felt like I had an epiphany. Before, I felt like an alien from some other planet, and I didn't know why I was here. And the epiphany was, oh, that's why I'm here, to learn how to understand and give this thing called love. Wow. The other thing that Dale did that day is she held my face in her hands and she said, you need to learn to take better care of yourself because your mother is too sick and can't care for you. And I would take you with me if you were my little girl, but you're not. So I have to leave you, but I will never forget you. Did you ever see her again? I did. Um, many years later, I wrote a short story and I was determined to find her. And I found her and um, she had never forgotten me. She worked as a, she had a fourth or fifth grade education. Um, had had never been able, as she said, she was always considered a slow learner and some believe she was mentally retarded. And she worked as a poor cleaning woman and she had just so much wisdom, I can't even tell you. And so we, we spent a, a, quite, a few, quite a few weekends together and then she was diagnosed with advanced um, lung cancer. And on one of those trips, I was sitting with her and I started to cry. And I said, Dale, I'm so sorry. It's taken me so long to find you. We've lost so many years together. And she said, don't be afraid because you did find me. And now I'm not afraid to die. Just look at you. You're like a ripple that goes out. I know I did one good thing in my life because of you. And oh, that must have made you cry. Oh, yes. And then she asked me, if she needed me when she was actively dying, would I come? And I said, of course I would. And one night I dreamt all night that she was calling me and I called her house the next morning early and there was no answer. And I called the hospital that she'd been in and out of. And the nurse said she was actively dying and was afraid and she couldn't find anyone to come be with her. And they were very short staffed that week and she was going on vacation. If she weren't, she'd do a double shift just to be with her. And I said, tell her I heard her calling and I'm coming. And I got on the next plane and um, I got there about 1230 and she was still lucid enough to know I was there and reached for my hands. And I sat with her till about two or three when she passed. That is an incredible story. Came full circle. It, it really did. And that, that you, you, I love I love the book that you that that you've written. Um, the, the story of your life is like no other. And like like we said before we began, it's, it's like a, it's like if this was a novel, nobody would buy it because it's too unbelievable. And, you know, it's it from one thing to another. But you know, um, the interesting thing is the kindness of humanity. Yes. And the kindness of, of people that had a, an impact in your life was truly remarkable. And there were so many. There were so many. And, you know, the other thing, Kevin, is you said that no one would buy it because they'd think it, it couldn't possibly be true. 
But I have to tell you, those things still go on today. Oh, I know. You know, there, there, there's constant problem all over the country, all over the world with human trafficking. You're, you're absolutely right. I want I want you to tell me the story of the young girl that you met many years later that you were doing some therapy with. Um, do you remember that story? You're talking about the, the young girl who was part of a group who was, yes, yes. yes. Because, because the thing is, is that you at the, at the beginning part, you received angels both either physical or, or emotional or spiritually. But at the end, you became one of those angels. Thank you. Thank you. Which is truly a, a, a testament to who you are, but it's also the, you know, the, the, the ability of humanity to recover. But that story, uh, it meant a lot to me when you, when you said it. And, uh, and I know it meant a lot to the young lady. Um, tell us that story, please. So I was um, working with a group of young people on um, one of the reservations in the middle of the country. Native reservations, and they had had an um, epidemic of adolescent suicides. And a colleague and I had been there for a week and worked with probably a thousand students during that time. And then we were asked to go to one more school before we left. And this was a um, junior high. And so these 12, 13 year olds were um, in a really bad place and they had lost the third for a third friend to suicide. We were sitting in the library around a table and one of the girls looks across the table at me and she says, why are you really here? And of course we had introduced ourselves, but she was asking something much deeper than what, how we'd introduced ourselves. And I said, I'm here because when I was your age, life was very dark and had people not come into my life and held light in that darkness for me and held my hope for me, I don't know that I would be here. And that's why I'm really here, because that's what I want to be to you. And this young woman looked at me and she said, I don't believe you. You look too peaceful and too happy. That's despair. And I said, you know, I can understand that. Had someone like me come along and said what I just said to you, I'd have trouble believing it when I was in such a dark place too. But nonetheless, I believe it helped me. And she settled down and then we were able to continue to work, move around. We did a number of activities in the group. And at the end, I asked them each to go around and to share who they were willing to talk to. And it got back to this young woman and she slowly rolled up her sleeves and her arms were filled with cuts. And she said, this, this is who I talk to. I talk to my flesh. It's another way that I know I'm alive is because I can at least talk to my flesh. And I did something that I never would have thought of doing. I rolled up my own arms, my own, my own sleeves and showed her my arms. Because back when I was at Illinois State Psychiatric Institute, I started cutting my arms because nobody would listen to me. And it was the only way to lay claim to my own body. And, and, I, and I pretty much said that to her. I said, this is what I did to myself too. I did the same thing. I talked to my flesh when I couldn't talk to anybody else. 
And suddenly this young woman came flying around the table and threw herself in my arms sobbing. And then she looked at me and she said, I believe you now before I thought you were just another white bitch. <laughs> and that, that almost, you know, it, it, it makes you emotional and it makes you, um, because you had the opportunity and you took the opportunity and the ability to really help somebody through a dark place. Have you kept up with her? Do you have any idea what what happened to her? About a year later, we stayed connected, but I haven't heard from her more recently. Well, I, I just hope if she is out and about and listens to this or, or read, your, read your book that, uh, that you are an angel for her. And that that is so important that even when you are, when you get out of the dark place and you have the ability, see, you could touch people because of your experiences that nobody else can touch. And that that is, that is what is really extraordinary about your story is that, that you could, if somebody says, you don't have any idea how bad my life is. Oh yeah. Well, you want to know about this and then this, and then this happened and, and, and see, there's, there's no way that, that they can deny that, that you've been through a lot. What is it about you that has made you the woman you are today? You know, there's, there's so much, there's so many people that have, have been a gift to me. And when I got out of the state hospital, I made a vow to myself. I knew that I was not mentally ill. And, and the vow I made to myself is that I would not live the rest of my life with a leftover mental health diagnosis. I would do absolutely everything in my power to get 100% healthy and whole. And even though I went through, eventually, I went through really hard, deep therapy, which was life-saving in many ways, it was also grueling because I had to go back into that past. Therapy is done a little differently than it was back then. Um, but I think that was part of it. And I also, I think probably because of that very first foundational experience when I was three, I believe that there was something more than myself. And there was always this need to reach out to more. And I was always looking for that. And I think it, it took different forms during different stages of my life. Um, so there was a point where I was very much involved um, in the Catholic tradition. And then I was married to an Episcopal priest and was involved in the Episcopal tradition. And then for a long period of time, I went through a dark night of the soul where I didn't know if I really believed in anything. And, but for many years, I worked with children um, at the local children's hospital. And I worked with children who were going home to die, both infants as well as children with cancer, and was present with hundreds of deaths, both children and then eventually adults. And that really became a spiritual te teacher for me, helping me to know without a doubt that there was something more. And I got broken open again and again and again um, in ways that are undescribable. So you would be someone that I could ask 
this question about because uh, in our in our family, there has always been a curiosity about this particular thing. When my dad, my dad had lung cancer, then he had an, it again, and he had surgery, and uh, he uh, um, had a uh, brain aneurysm, and started to uh, uh, go into you know like a coma, and he, he wasn't making much sense. But uh, several days before he passed, um, his his right hand was paralyzed from the stroke that he was undergoing. And he was lying in his bed, and he looked up with a real light in his eyes and was looking at, a, at the ceiling. My sister was standing right there, and we were both watching him. He was looking at the ceiling. He raised his hand up. He couldn't point with his fingers, but he raised his hand up, and he started talking and kind of. Um, I have always believed that the, those were the people that were coming to guide him over yes. to the other side. Do you concur with that? Absolutely. And I've seen that again and again. Um, I, I'll tell you two quick stories. One is a woman who I saw the morning she was dying and she was in and out of consciousness. And what she said to me is she said, oh, Laura, tell everyone it's so beautiful. I float out and there's not a thing to be afraid of. There's so many people waiting for me. And then I float back in and I say, oh, shit, here I am again. <laughs> but the other one is um, an even more interesting story. I was working with a woman who was a bit of a curmudgeon. And no matter what, she would not admit she was dying. And I had been asked to see her because she had fired, I don't remember how many doctors, and wouldn't let a number of nurses in anywhere around her because she believed she was going to have a miraculous cure. And she was she was dying. She was actively dying of advanced ovarian cancer. So I would go in and sit. And of course, they wanted me to get her to talk about it. But I knew better than to try to get anyone to talk about anything. Um, so I just let her lead what, whatever we were talking about. One day I saw her and she said, you know, I've come up with a little plan. I think I should tell you about the story of my life. And I said, I'd love to hear the story of your life. And this woman had the most incredible life. She'd been raised up in way northern Minnesota. And um, her family were the first to um, build an outfitter's business up there. And the kids were homeschooled. And at night, um, the parents would say goodnight to them in the bar and tavern. And then the kids would walk themselves to bed in a different, in a, in a cabin. And so she's telling this story and she talks about this man who, who comes, uh, or this bear who comes out of the woods and grabs her by the ankle and her sister's screaming and she's screaming and she's literally getting dragged through the woods by her ankle. And all of a sudden, this woman named Nellie comes out and scares the bear away enough so that he drops her. And then she carries her back to the, to the restaurant bar to give her to her parents. And as she's talking, this has never happened to me since or before, I could see that the, the image of that woman, Nellie, going through her face. Mm. And then she told another story. One night it had rained really bad and they had to walk through this very narrow path that went by a small lake that had flooded over and she slipped and she fell in and she didn't know how to swim yet. And another person came and saved her. And she said, Laura, what you don't know is up there, there's all these misfits that can't live in society. So they live in these shacks in the woods. This is up in the Boundary Waters, northern Minnesota. 
And, and um, so one of them saved her. And again, I saw the face. Had I been an artist, I probably could have drawn their faces. And finally, she continued with her story, telling me several other stories when she'd been in danger. And I said, as you've been talking, I, I feel like I've been watching them come through your countenance and seeing them. If I, um, Did Nellie look like such and such? And did old Ed look like such and such? And she said, that's exactly what they look like. I said, why do you think I'm seeing them now? And she, she chuckled and she said, they're here to tell me I'm going to be okay. They're going to be waiting for me on the other side and be there for me just like they were when I was a kid. So now I'm not afraid to admit I'm dying. You still with me, Kevin? I think you've frozen, Kevin. So that particular event, as well as I could tell you 25 others, really helped me to know that there was something more. And I, and over my lifetime, I've had many spiritual teachers um, as, as well as done a, done a lot of work in the way I consider spirituality as opposed to religion is religion is how we choose to feed our spiritual nature and spirituality is about our essence. It's about our soul. Thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of KMmedia.pro. Please visit our website, oddly enough, named KMmedia.pro for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to each other because each other's all we've got. We'll see you next time.